with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains much, much encouragement and support and faith-building verses. Lord, we're also thankful that there are verses that are tough, that we have to wrestle with and struggle with, come to grips with. Lord, we thank you that all of it is your truth. We thank you that all of it, as your word tells us, is profitable. It's all profitable for correction, for reproof, for teaching, and for equipping all of us so that we can be made more and more in the image of your Son. We thank you that you never change. Your word never changes. And we can derive peace from that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who were in Sunday school a few weeks ago, uh, you'll remember that Dr. David Jeremiah used an illustration for truth in our culture. As we look at our passage this morning, I think a quote from that same illustration will start our message off quite well. Dr. Jeremiah told the story of three baseball umpires getting together to talk about how they decided what pitches were balls and which ones were strikes. One, one umpire states, there are balls and there are strikes and I call them as they are. The second umpire states, that's arrogant. There are balls and there are strikes and I call them the way that I see them. The third umpire states, that's no better. Why beat around the bush? Why not be realistic about what we do? There are balls and there are strikes and ain't nothing till we call them. According to Dr. Jeremiah, the first umpire knew there was universal truth. A pitch was either a ball or a strike and nothing was going to change that. The second umpire was a truth relativist. Truth as he saw it was what he saw and interpreted things to be. According to the second umpire, he had his version of truth, and someone else could have their version of truth. I have my truth, you have your truth. The third umpire had a postmodern view of truth, and that there was no truth, and you could just make up your own version of truth. In our passage this morning, we'll be looking at uh, Paul addressing a glaring sexual problem in the Corinthian church. And as we look at it, we'll see the important connection that God's unchanging truth has with his, uh, has with his unchanging standards. First, I want to do a bit of review, which will directly inform this morning's message. It's been a little while since we've been, been in 1 Corinthians, so I want to bring everybody back up to speed and on the same page. As we know, Paul has not been writing in a vacuum shut up in a room somewhere and just spouting off unrelated bumper sticker sayings, but has been addressing specific situations that he's found out about from visitors uh, to him while he's been residing in Ephesus for a two and a half year stint during his third missionary journey. We find out from chapter 1 that some representatives of a well-off woman from the church in Corinth came to see Paul while he was in Ephesus and reported that there was a raging fire of division in the Corinthian church. 
The basis of this raging division was a splitting up of many of the people into many camps who were loyal to one human minister over another, namely pitting followers of Paul versus followers of Apollos. In fact, believe it or not, as we've seen the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, which we wrapped up back in mid-December, deal specifically with this situation. Paul first starts out with an introductory rebuke towards that situation in chapter 1, then moves on to the theological framework that makes the pride that fueled that division pointless since our basic salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. Furthermore, in chapter 2, Paul takes that humility and downplays his role in the Corinthian salvation, stating that the only thing he came to them with was weakness, fear, and much trembling, and if it did have anything to do with him, they would still be spiritually lost. The Corinthians had no reason to put him or Apollos or any other human minister because even the act of them uh, on a pedestal, because even the act of them receiving the gospel was the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and had nothing to do with any human power. In fact, as Paul says in chapter 3, human ministers are nothing when it comes to God bestowing his saving faith on individuals. It's God's salvation God's plan and God through his Holy Spirit works in one's heart to bring them to faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. The minister is a vehicle for the message, but it's ultimately God who gives the faith. That's a freeing truth to anyone who has ever been burned by a church or a minister. It's not a reason to walk away from God because God's word is clear that our faith is not dependent on how a church or minister has acted towards us. It all belongs to God and God alone. That doesn't give ministers a free pass to do whatever they want and act unwisely or flippantly with God's word as they want, however. Chapter 3 also makes it clear that how closely a minister carries out the mission of Jesus will be directly proportional to how Jesus will reward them at the end. A minister who merely acts in accordance with his own ambition and pride will have everything they did in the name of Jesus burned up. Even though if they were saved to begin with, they'll still retain that salvation. However, on the other side, to a minister who's dedicated his life to the Lord's work and the accurate and loving handle handling of the Lord's word, there is no greater reward than to hear praise directly from that Lord when they stand before him. Finally, in chapter 4, Paul summarizes everything he said up to this point and points specifically to a proper understanding and view of ourselves in humility before Almighty God. The solution to the problem Paul saw in the Corinthian church in this situation was humility. And even the way that problem was addressed by Paul was clothed in humility. He finishes up chapter 4 by indicating that if the leaders of this human loyalty division don't heed his words and gentle admonishment and instruction, they will be faced with stronger discipline when Paul, their spiritual father, who has no qualms of using his apostolic authority, returns to them. We saw how Paul's sequence of discipline as the Corinthian spiritual father is reflective of the sequence of discipline our heavenly father will address us with. 
starts with gentle instruction from the commandments. He's already laid out for us in his word and furthered by the counsel of ministers, elders, and ministry leaders on those commandments. If that instruction is not heeded, God will use stronger means to get our attention and direct us back to the path he wants us on. None of his discipline discipline is for our destruction. None of it. None of his discipline is for our destruction. It is always for our good and our protection. Now, as Paul opens up what will be labeled as chapter 5, he turns his attention to another matter at hand that he's been made aware of either by Chloe's representatives or by the official delegation from the Corinthian church that Paul refers to at the end of chapter 16 in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5 basically takes up the entirety of Paul's dealing with this problem starting in verse 1. So the first point that we come to, we're only going to be in two verses, but there's a whole lot here. Uh, The first point in these two verses is the danger. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there so we can all see this together and all be on the same page. Chapter 5, verse 1. We read, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And not just immorality, but immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. That's the basic problem that Paul will use the whole rest of the chapter to address here. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this is in direct rejection of what God condemned 1,500 years before this in his law to Israel. It may already seem obvious and gross to us, but you must never have sexual relations with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. You must not have sexual relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with any of your father's wives, for this will violate your father. We've already covered this topic when we went through Galatians, but believers in Jesus are not held to the ritual, dietary, festival, or sacrificial aspects of the Jewish law, for Jesus has fulfilled all of those on our behalf. Because of this, each of those aspects has been clearly addressed as unnecessary in the New Testament for believers in Jesus to adhere to. However, all the moral aspects of the law that God is making us more into the image of in his Son, summarized in the Ten Commandments, still pertain to us as believers in Jesus. This includes the obvious ones, such as stealing, lying, murder, and adultery, as well as the ones including homosexuality and other sexual sins, such as this one in Leviticus. The argument of, well, if we followed the Jewish laws against homosexuality and other sexual sinful behavior, then we have to stop eating shellfish and start wearing clothes that are made of the same type of cloth is completely illogical. That argument is comparing two and even three different types of laws, moral with dietary with ritualistic. The last two no longer apply to believers in Jesus, but the first one still does as we see the New Testament confirm over and over again. Likewise, the argument of, well, Jesus never specifically addressed such and such a sin, so it must no longer be a sin, or at the very least, not that big of a deal, is an incredibly shallow and misguided argument. If you take God's word, God's word as a whole, especially in how the New Testament correctly relates to the Old Testament, you will see that the picture is much, much bigger than that. 
especially when it comes to sexuality and marriage, the New Testament over and over again affirms what God's standards in the Old Testament are. And believe it or not, we as 21st century believers in Jesus are still under the Bible's authority, whether we like it or not. And the specific problem Paul is addressing here, beyond what the Old Testament had already condemned, according to one biblical scholar, even in Roman law, sexual relations with a step-parent was treated as if it were a parent and equally as abhorred. In fact, it was one of the universal abominations throughout the Greco-Roman world. So when Paul says in verse 1, this immorality isn't even heard of among the Gentiles, this is no exaggeration. Everyone, including the Gentiles who pretty much accepted any kind of sexual relationship as okay, from taking advantage of slave girls to freely indulging in homosexual relationships, still treated the relationship that was going on in the Corinthian church as abhorrent. Talk about a testimony that a church had. What made matters worse was how the rest of the church was treating it, the first part of verse 2. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead. Knowing what we know about even the surrounding culture of Corinth at the time, how in the world was this what was going on in the church? How in the world could the church be boastful about what it was allowing to take place by one of its members? One biblical scholar noted that it may have been the Corinthians' misunderstanding of spiritual freedom. Just like we've discussed, many of the Corinthians may have thought that because Paul was quite vocal about the law's weaknesses when it came to saving faith, that the whole thing could just be tossed out the window in the name of spiritual freedom. Even in the face of this relationship even being treated as an abomination by Roman law and culture, many of the Corinthians could then boast, we've been saved because of God's grace. Therefore, anything goes. And as long as we treat each other with love, we fulfill what Jesus wants us to do. Sadly, that sounds very familiar in many churches today, doesn't it? Many churches today shy away from God's righteous standards in favor of accepting any kind of lifestyle, no matter how rebellious it is to God's word, in the name of Jesus' love. Obviously, the universal church is called to love in Jesus' name, but nowhere in God's word does it say to do so at the expense of rejecting God's moral commandments. In fact, it affirms quite the opposite time and time and time again. What God's word does tell us is to be made more and more into the image of Jesus. Isn't that what God's word tells us? To be made more and more into the image of Jesus? Who is obedient in every way to the Father, morally and even to the point of death on a cross? It's quite a slippery slope when a church starts freely accepting and treating as perfectly okay lifestyles and behavior that reject the holy standards of what God clearly teaches us in his word. Pretty soon, what does the church then start looking like? The world. Why is that a bad thing? Because the church then starts morally governing itself according to the world's standards. And what standard is that? Well, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> 
So you have churches who do exactly what is being condemned in the Corinthian church. Churches who boast about not being judgmental and condemning and boast about all the lifestyles and behavior they accept and promote. You'll see that coming up more and more as we get into the month of June. That was the underlying problem with the Corinthian church in this area. Their misunderstanding of their relation to God's righteous standards already laid out in the Old Testament and affirmed in the New Testament blinded them to even accept and promote behavior that even the pagans around them abhorred. They allowed themselves to not hold themselves to the scriptural commandments, but allow the surrounding culture to permeate their behavior. So we talked about the danger. Secondly, we're talking about the definitive, the absolute. Sexual sin has taken such a hold on our culture, and because many churches have allowed their surrounding culture to permeate their standards based on a grievous misunderstanding of spiritual freedom, Whenever Paul talks about sexual, uh, spiritual freedom in the New Testament, it's in relation to the freedom we have in Christ to serve him wholeheartedly with our lives and not get hung up on all the little dietary, ritualistic, and sacrificial rules since the Gentiles have been added. However, the moral rules were not nullified in our spiritual freedom. In fact, when the Jerusalem Council convened in 48 AD to decide what the Gentiles should be held to ritualistically and more specifically if they should be forced to be circumcised or not, this, the, the Apostle jo James stood up. This was his answer, which everyone there agreed with. And he said, so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. All of these, even though they're physical laws, rules, are directly connected to spiritual, our spiritual selves. These were all moral bans, not simply ceremonial and to prevent the Gentile believers from offending their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. But what stands out to you there? Sexual immorality. When we start defining what sexual immorality is, other than the clear biblical definition, we go down a slippery slope and end up in the same place the Corinthian church was in. We have the clearest definition of what God's standard is in Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. According to one biblical scholar, the phrase bed or marriage bed is an idiom for sexual relationships. In other words, this verse could read, marriage is to be held in honor and sexual relationships are to be undefiled. The clear connection between a sexual relationship being defiled or not is if it's within a marriage relationship. Because marriage is to be held in high honor among all, sexual activity between two people is reserved only for a marriage relationship. Because marriage is to be held in such high honor, any sexual activity outside of the binds of marriage is sin. 
and is therefore defiled. Paul notes this obvious connection further on in this letter. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. It's hard to get around that, isn't it? Pretty clear. There is a clear distinction between a marriage sexual relationship and all other kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage. There was every kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage existing in Paul's day as it there is now. Do not be deceived by the lie that Paul's world was completely different than ours. They accepted every single sexual relationship outside of marriage that our culture does today. No sexual relationship outside of marriage today is any different than what Paul was writing about in his day. Rather than going through each of the different sexually immoral possibilities as they were just as far-ranging as they are today, Paul is very clear about what the only sexual relationship that is acceptable and glorifying to God. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. That's it. Anything beyond that is skirting around or outright rebelling against God's blueprint for human sexuality and what God created it for in glorification of him in Genesis 2. We read in Genesis 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When God created Eve, he immediately brought her to Adam and married her to him. It was the first marriage ceremony in human history. And from that point on, that was God's blueprint for human sexuality. What do we see there? We see the creation of marriage and that the coming together as one flesh has an obvious physical and sexual meaning only to be enjoyed within that marriage. Jesus himself affirmed this in connection with this blueprint in Matthew 19, 4 through 5. When he said, he answered and said, have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? He affirmed this in the New Testament. One other point on this subject. An original purpose of the marriage sexual relationship was to bear children. Unfortunately, in the broken world that we live in, married couples can, can have trouble with this that causes much heartache. Rest in the promise, brothers and sisters, that God has a purpose for this too. My point is that once you remove the aspect in the purpose of having sexual relations being inextricably connected to the bearing of children, it generally becomes a slippery slope that opens up the door to any kind of sexual relationship. That's part of the reason why God gave the original blessing to the first husband and wife to be fruitful and multiply. Thankfully, God always gives us opportunity to repent and make things right with him. We can always cut off the sexual activity with someone we're not married to, or we can take steps to make a sexual relationship right before God by entering into a marriage covenant with them. 
We can always confess sexual sin or being involved with pornography to our spouse and taking steps towards healing. It can always be made right before God, but it starts with taking the first step. Our view of sinful sexual behavior in our culture and as it pertains to our individual and personal lives is oftentimes directly connected to our culture's view of truth. Just as the Corinthians had allowed their surrounding culture to permeate their church and their personal lives, we often allow our surrounding culture and how they view truth and how they view sin to affect what we interpret as sin and how we deal with it. Thankfully, no matter what culture we're in, the Word of God gives us a definite definition of truth and God's righteous standard in connection with that definite definition of truth. Thankfully, we're not beholden to a changing culture's definition of truth and the standard in connection with that as our opening illustration related to. Jesus said himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. God is our definition of truth. God is our definition of righteousness. He's made that definition and those commandments of righteousness quite clear. And because we find out from Scripture that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God's righteous standards are the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, we can't take God's never-changingness as a desirable characteristic when it comes to his plan for salvation and the fulfillment of all of his promises and reject God's never-changingness when it comes to his righteous standards. It doesn't work that way. We have to take all of him and all of his standards. We can't pick and choose which parts we like and which parts we don't like. It's up to what is true or what is righteous because that's already been made clear. It's up to whether or not we're going to obey them out of our love for him. Paul stresses the importance of dealing with this type of sin in the second part of verse 2. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Instead of mourning the sin, they boasted about it. Instead of instructing the sinning party and leading him to repentance, it got to the point of no return. Paul will delve more into this in the following verses. But for now, we need to see how big of a deal ongoing sin, especially sexual sin, has to do with the life of the church. If a church is going to move forward and grow, the people that make up the church must be seeking after God's kingdom and God's righteousness, especially sexual righteousness, at the forefront. Steps need to be taken to make things right before God. Repentance and real change need to occur. Thankfully, it's never too late to make things right. We've never lost God's love. God is faithful to forgive, restore, and provide. The first step in sexual reconciliation with God is always the hardest. Always. But it's the step that needs to happen. We can seek to be pleasing to God in every area of our lives. That is what freedom in Christ really means. 
God seeks for each of us to be growing in his redemption in every area of our lives. We're all on different roads of sanctification and Holy Spirit transformation. We're all dealing with different struggles. And God is hard at work in all of us as he brings us to higher and higher levels of righteousness. Let us as individuals of this body of Christ look to see after that we're pleasing to God in every area of our lives. Let us aid to our own spiritual growth as well as the growth of our church as a whole by getting what we need to get right with God. And as we do that, we'll all be following the author of Hebrews' instruction. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Get things right with God and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you never change. We thank you that your righteous standards never change. We thank you that you never stop loving us. And we thank you that it's never too late to make every area of our lives right and pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us all the courage to do what needs to be done. That you would give us all the courage to make every area of our, of our lives pleasing to you. To take what steps need to be taken to start that process. Lord, we thank you that you never leave us where you find us. But you're always making us more and more into the image of your son always deepening our faith, always seeking to make us more righteous. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.